Well, on Friday, I returned from Israel-Palestine with a terrific group of pilgrims from Christ Church. We had a really great time together, especially rich time, I would tell you, experiencing many of the famous and expected sacred sites like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, Bethlehem and the region around the Sea of Galilee. We also encountered people and places associated with current relevance, for instance, traveling into the West Bank behind the barrier wall, listening to different narratives of Palestinians and Jewish settlers. We also spent a morning at Yad Vashem, which is the World Holocaust Remembrance Center in Jerusalem. History religious narrative and modern political arrangements all collide in this sacred land, each informing the other components, how we interpret the other components. And inevitably, the sincere pilgrim is forced to consider the depth of his or her own spiritual commitment to following after the way of Jesus and rethinking what his way in the world entails today. And it turns out that one of the places we visited happened to be Mount Carmel, the supposed site of Elijah's confrontation with King Ahab and the prophets of Baal that we heard John read about earlier. A couple of weeks ago, as I was thinking about this Sunday, I wondered whether we should just skip this text today and focus on something less wildly fantastical Normally, we follow the three-year cycle of a signed text called the lectionary, not slavishly, but routinely, so that was the scheduled reading for today. If, the, if we didn't follow that discipline, likely you'd never hear in a Sunday service how Elijah, the powerful prophet of Israel's God, whomped the prophets of the Canaanite god named Baal. It's pretty dramatic, isn't it? Steven Spielberg could have a lot of fun metastasizing that into a 3D spectacle with fire raining down and so on. And there we were last Thursday on the top of Mount Carmel listening to this story in vivid detail and wondering what on earth we were to make of it today. From a theological point of view, it's a story about idolatry that is giving our allegiance to something or someone that doesn't deserve our allegiance. It's a story about the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The passage begins with Elijah asking the people, how long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word, we're told. That's how the story proceeds. Presumably they didn't answer because they were uncertain about what was true, I guess. The story then unfolds a fantastic metaphorical or mystical confrontation between those who were advancing the case for Baal and Elijah, who was advancing Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
Is it too simple, too basic to assert that it really does matter who or what has our essential allegiance and how that allegiance shows up in the content of our lives? Does that sound too elementary to you? Too old-fashioned, quaint? Can we hear it too many times? I, for one, cannot, which is why I decided Elijah's drama should be read today. You know, spiritually mature people spend out a lifetime learning what it actually means to follow after the true God. And I can tell you as one lone pilgrim, this issue haunts my prayer and meditation. Here's my consistent, heartfelt prayer. Holy God, not my will, but yours be done. And may I be the one doing it. Those of us who seek to follow God need reliable voices in our own time that, in the words of Carolyn Sharp, can sound through the incessant clamor of consumerism, the self-indulgent murmurings of social narcissism, and the bitter divisiveness of contemporary politics, calling us away from our idols and back to the Holy One. And while cultural contexts have changed radically over the millennia, the essential human conundrum of aligning ourselves to the holy and the true remains at the core of our journey. That is allegiance to something larger than our own self-interest that asks something significant of us, that draws us out into becoming the humans God intended in the first place. Growing into a larger, more mature version of ourselves and then living and moving on the path Jesus set forth. While you were worshiping here last Sunday, the Holy Land pilgrims were visiting Yad Vashem. As I mentioned, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. It covers a very large area with several museum and remembrance structures, including one that is dedicated solely to the one and a half million children who were extinguished in Hitler's so-called final solution. One and a half million children in approximately a four-year period. I've now walked through that memorial six times, and each time I am overwhelmed by the scope of the moral catastrophe. It is so large, you almost miss it. Does that make sense? You, it's so big, you cannot take it on. But garden paths also commemorate those who are named as the righteous among the nations. In a world of total moral collapse, there was a small minority who mustered extraordinary courage to uphold human, humane values. These were the righteous among the nations. As example, you might recall the name of Oscar Schindler, made famous by Spielberg's movie Schindler's List. He's there. He's 
commemorated there. These stand in stark contrast to the mainstream of indifference and hostility that prevailed during the Holocaust. And contrary to the general trend, these rescuers regarded the Jews as fellow human beings who came within the bounds of their universe of obligation. But then, you know, comparatively so, so few, such a tiny, tiny minority. But you see then, as the story is told, several thousand years earlier, Elijah thundered, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. And I'm thinking that that silence seems just like yesterday. The sad truth is that most evil is done by people who never make up their minds to be good or evil. That's what Hannah Arendt wrote as she considered the Nazi trials post-World War II. And honest pilgrims can't walk through Yad Vashem without confronting their tendency to fall victim to their lesser selves as they ask the searingly difficult question of how on earth such evil was wreaked upon humanity. And if they're honest, they know the answer lies within. Considering the case of Adolf Eichmann, one of the principal organizers of the Holocaust, Arendt said, the trouble with Eichmann was precisely that so many were like him and that the many were neither perverted nor sadistic, that they were and still are terribly and terrifyingly normal. From the viewpoint of our legal institutions and of our moral standards of judgment, this normality was much more terrifying than all of the atrocities put together. And then this present-day reality juxtaposed with the lifetimes and teachings of Jesus, you see, sets up a very demanding spiritual engagement that cannot be left in the sands of the Judean desert. I have found in my many journeys there that it comes right along with the dirty clothes and trinkets I unpack, which is a very good thing. The world, you see, desperately needs people willing to grow into a robust spiritual mature. You know this. The world desperately needs people willing to grow up into a robust spiritual maturity. That's what we champion here at Christ Church. Well-informed and courageous spiritual adults who have an adult faith that takes the world as it is and lives into it with a courage and conviction that God will have the day. But here's the thing. That doesn't happen by accident. It must be chosen. And as in Elijah's days, it would seem a minority choice. Do you imagine that we postmoderns are immune 
from the disastrous effects of lazy moral formation? That would be a remarkably stupid and dangerous conclusion. But I think there's an arrogant point of view out and about that suggests that. You know, friends, the only way I know of solidifying this conscious choice is to throw in with others who are also straining forward in the journey home listening for the voice of the one who set the whole thing in motion in the first place. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing here. And the rather odd behaviors and dramatic texts and get-ups and goings-on here emphasize the importance of the human enterprise, making sacred what can otherwise seem ordinary or inconsequential, just like any given individual human life. And then, and then, though, imagine this prayer amplified by all of our voices joined as one. Holy God, not our will, but yours be done. And may we be found as the ones actually doing it.